Tonight's talk is called The Know of Love. The Know of Love. I th- what brought uh, this subject up for me was that uh, many people uh, feel inclined to think of love as a, as a very open yes, as a wide open uh, inclusivity and openness uh, where there isn't, aren't any boundaries. And uh, uh, we get very um, enamored by that state. Uh, and many of us have had perhaps touch points of that state uh, during our spiritual uh, practices. Uh, perhaps when you're chanting, uh, if you notice the heart center when you do chant, uh, how... Uh, totally accepting and allowing uh, that place can be where there just aren't any partitions. There's nothing wrong with life in that particular open display. And you can walk out very starry-eyed from uh, an encounter like that. But most of us don't have a sense of the groundedness or the balance of what love is when it's not felt from that sense of almost idealization of it. And uh, to the point where uh, some uh, person uh, said to me, um, they were talking about a particular abusive relationship that she was in, and she said, well, if I could just love enough, I would be accepting of this relationship. Uh, So I thought, well, I... I really need to address this point <laughs> because it's not that's not the that's not the qu- the quality of love is being misunderstood and uh, we really need to see it for what it is which is a a balance a balance and so does the love have a no to it does is there a no to love is there a no uh, that's equal to the yes that we can feel in this open expression of heart that many of us can access at particular times. Even in meditation, you'll find sometimes it takes you to this uh, kind of wondrous sense of perfection of things. But where is the no in that? Where is the balance between those two? And so I'm slicing, putting this talk in between a talk of time and a talk on death. <laughs> a series bracketed by those series. Uh, and I think if you follow it tonight, you'll understand how they relate to both of those subjects as well. Because I, I think I'll use, uh, if I could, go back uh, to the vertical and the horizontal axis a little bit in this. Because um, the know of love, uh, the way this thing works, the, the only way the, the, the any attribute of the Dharma works is within a paradox of itself where I was just describing sort of the vertical uplift of the heart when it's free and singing and uh, light and carefree, when there is no no. And yet, as a human being, each of us feel very limited uh, most of the time in our bodies, in our minds. There is a very strong sense of no within us, but we think that that's reservation that we have is where we need to work to expand and get beyond that so that we can feel this uh, 
inclusivity that we feel at very rare times uh, in our meditation. And I would like to caution a different perception and a different understanding of what love is so that it also includes the no. So it's kind of a paradox because love in its purest form does have a, is boundaryless. Love in its pure form is inclusive. Love in its pure form doesn't is is uh, is entirely open. Uh, and yet, as a human being, we have limitations. And is that then a problem in the face of this? Uh, vast space that we feel uh, at rare times in our practice. Where is the no of love? And I think just providing a, a very quick example, you'll see how this paradox works completely functionally in the world of form and expressions of form. As this love comes into form, into body, embodied experience, uh, through this next example I'll give, I think you'll see immediately how it, uh, how both of those work simultaneously. And that is, if you have a small child who uh, you're trying to raise to be as loving as you can and to be as open as you can, yet that child doesn't have the maturity to know not to walk into traffic, you say no to that child. That no is not coming from um, aversion or uh, displeasure with him or her at all, is it? It's coming from love. But there's a very strong no of limitation in what that child should and should not be able to do. And there is a knowing of the limitation of that child's own understanding so that it has to be curved in a certain way so that a limit is imposed upon the child that the child, him or herself, may not understand at that time. They may feel it as a punishment, but from your point of view, that's a very important training to offer. So there is both a yes with the, the permission for the child to be loved and yet a no within the restriction of what that child can do. And so that yes and no simultaneously coexist in that particular um, restraint that you're offering that child. But we get very idealized, and I, I think one of the ways that we make a mistake in meditation is that we start thinking beyond ourselves. We don't allow our own limitations to coexist with an open heart. We think we should get beyond our limitations in some way and have a more expansiveness. And so we're always fighting the no within us to keep uh, encouraging a further development of yes, which... You see, which, from the most part, is a true orientation to practice, but as I will show in the course of this talk, is not a true acceptance of where we are within the practice. So we have to be aware of both of those. And it's really clear, I think, if you've ever been in a job, perhaps um, any job, but so, so, uh, certainly uh, jobs that are socially engaged, you'll know where... Uh, uh, this open-hearted uh, interfacing with your job works against you rather than for you, and that is in terms of burnout, where if you have 
a sense that there are no limits or you should impose no limits on yourself and what you do for these needy people, then you set your, we set ourselves up uh, to burn ourselves out within that limitless connection. For instance, if you are idealistic and you think that if you work hard enough that there's nothing that can't be accomplished and we don't see the limitation of our form, of our own ability to work, then we're going to be quite um, upset, uh, resentful when we see that that idealism has to crash down into the reality of our own limitations. Or the other way, if you're a perfectionist and you're very demanding on your standards and expectations, you have very high standards. Again, uh, that sense of one-sidedness in the polarity, the balance of the polarity, will lead inevitably to a downfall where we bottom out in our work and in our job because the equation of life is not being balanced. I mean, uh, even in the most idealized life, one has to consider the limitations of body and form, of body and mind, and, and work within that governance of body and mind uh, and consider that within the whole way one works to be able to come to the complete picture, the complete paradox of the yes and the no. And so finding the no in love and for your homework, I would like to suggest that you do just that. You find the yes and no within every action. And it's not to betray the yes and no. It's not to uh, um, live only one side of the issue, but to hold both, to hold both, and to see where the limitations are and where the open-heartedness is but not to lean in either direction towards idealism or towards resentment. So burnout can be, um, we can pace ourselves. We can pace ourselves. It's really the difference uh, between a helping and serving. When we help someone, we're doing it from a point of almost disadvantage where we're the holders of the, um, of the uh, whatever it is that we're, we're the holders of the, of the remedy and the people that we're serving have the problem. And so we're really looking downhill. It's almost in terms of pity when you try to help somebody in that way. Uh, you're working towards their disadvantaged and we're working to try to uplift them to our level of equality. Well, that's a very different way of working. And that way, uh, inevitably, we will run into burnout. That's a very different way of working than working with equality in service rather than in helping. In service, there is only equality. And one is being fed through their service work equally as to how they're serving the other person. As I've often mentioned, when I was working with the dying, uh, people asked me why I was doing it, thinking I would say to them, 
that I was doing it to serve the dying because the dying, I felt drawn to helping the dying. But that's not why I was there at all. I was there because I was interested in what dying was like. And I wanted to learn from the people who could offer that to me. And so when I interfaced with the dying, I was learning and growing and absorbing what I needed and then offering through that absorption, through that connection, what the dying needed. And so it was mutually beneficial to both the people who were on the other end of that, I think, and myself as well. But if it's only one-sided, if it's only us doing something for the underprivileged, then there's usually being driven by some pain in ourselves, some neediness that we have to have people need us. And that particular stance to a population of people will ultimately spell a depletion within us because we can't sustain it. Um, I want to speak a a moment about uh, love and meditation. Uh, And where is the no in meditation? And where is the yes in meditation? Because often I will, in the instructions I give, I will talk about meditation as just saying yes uh, to the experience at hand. Just say yes to it. And that's a way to encourage us beyond the boundaries of our usual uh, uh, relationship with experience, which is to say no to it right off the hand in a kind of knee-jerk reaction, no, and pull back in some kind of safety issue. So I try to offset that tendency by saying, okay, say yes to the yes to it. But there are times when each of us have limitations in our meditation, when the fear is such that we have to respect the power of that fear and to actually pause for a moment, pull back, not push ourselves ahead with an affirmation or a yes, or open ourselves beyond what we momentarily feel is our capacity, but to kind of monitor that and to be very gentle and sensitive to what our limitations are in that moment. So meditation isn't just a roughshod against and with everything, just an open expression of heart to all things. It's really much more of a of, uh, there's, there's much more of a human response in there as well. I just can't uh, deal with the depth and degree of my loneliness in this moment. So I need some distraction. So I may go to a movie or something. And that's a part of the whole way that we heal in terms of meditation. For instance, uh, someone once described meditation as deep sur- uh, surgical work, that you do a retreat or you spend some time alone. And it's like a very deep surgical wound that has hit you psychically and in body as well. And then after a while, uh, you come out of that retreat, but the wound needs to be tended to. There's a deep incision that has been made on every level of our being. It's somewhat like analogous to a scuba diver that goes way down into the depths of the ocean, but then when he or she comes up, uh, they have to pause along the way so that they won't uh, become uh, get the bends. And in the same way, in meditation, uh, after this deep surgical work has been done, 
uh, we have to pause after that descent. We have to um, allow ourselves to come back in, to restructure ourselves, to, to reaffirm our life in some way, and to figure out from where we have been what sense life makes as we do ascend back up into our life from the depths of that quiet. And what often happens is that we come up too quickly and we get the bends and we find we get frustrated or irritated and annoyed with what happens to us from the daily life existence. And we feel like what we need to do is to go back down uh, to the depths that we were and live at that level rather than to live at uh, sea level. And this kind of contraction and expansion is the reason I read Rumi's Bird Wings. That meditation is not just a contraction or an expansion all the time. It's really, really the flapping of those wings, both in expanding out and moving uh, through ourselves in depth and understanding and inquiry and opening to a, the yes of our life inwardly so that our experience are faced and the orientation to experience is more openness and receptivity, more relaxation, more harmony within that experience. And yet, at the same time, there's a contraction too as well. As we have lived, as we begin to live the insights from that depth, our life can't be just expansive. It has to also be kind of coming back into ourselves and figuring out what has just happened to us from that meditation and trying to make sense and trying to allow the, um, the balance to reemerge within ourselves. And it's something that I, in particular, haven't been as um, conscious of uh, because my own way is, has been kind of... Uh, forceful, but uh, as I have matured in my own practice and as a teacher, I can begin to see that uh, this time of renewal of a contraction back into ourselves is just as important. It's not like we're delaying the real work, which is more expansion and more diving down. The real work in that moment is the contraction is coming back into ourselves and getting a sense of the limitation of what and who we are within what we have just experienced. The no within the yes. The no and the yes breathe together. You see? Or we risk injury. We risk psychic injury if we go too quickly, if we arise too quickly, and if we are too demanding upon those uh, insights. And we feel the jagged way that they, we relate to life in general, to our relationships specifically, and to other people. And it's only love, it's only compassion, it's only love that will allow that insight to systematically reorganize itself into ourself, to integrate itself into ourself. And that love also comes in the pausing, in the contraction, not just in the expansion. It's like the mind is left fallow, like the earth at winter. It, we begin to realize that this, 
practice and the growth from what we see is not within our control. It's not within our demand on ourselves. We don't force ourselves into the next critical situation in which we learn. But the body, uh, an embodied experience, is one in which the body almost has more control than the mind. The body knows itself. It knows when it needs to sit and pause and not demand on itself. It also knows when just the opposite, when it needs to expand and move further down. And there's a, an intuitive feel that each of us have, if we can connect with it, as to what's the right movement in this moment for each one of us. The yes and the no. The x-axis and the y-axis, where they meet. The vertical response of inclusivity and the horizontal response of my humanness within that inclusivity. And how does that humanness grow? Because it doesn't just climb the vertical ladder or it loses its sense of proportionality and loses its sense of appropriateness. Neither does it deny the vertical stretch and just stay along the land base into its reactive patterns and its defensiveness and the no of life, the aversive life. But it stays right there at the intersection where both the yes and no can grow on its own. And so we explore how to live, really. What we're doing as we meet is exploring how to live because we don't know that. We know how to live from what we've been taught we know how to live from what our parents have shown us and we know how other people live. But we don't know how to live from the insights in which we have just seen. And that shows life to be very different than what we are. And we come back very fragile like a bird that's just left its egg. And it doesn't have a sense of how to fly. It doesn't have a sense of how to navigate. And it has to pause. It has to redefine itself. And it does so with gentleness, with compassion, not with force and demand. So it's both our humanness and the insubstantiality of life. It's another way of saying, talking about the paradox from which we move. Yes, we begin to see how empty life is and how empty we are, and at the same time, there is a heart that serves people and interacts in relationship with people. And perhaps one of the ways of describing the movement of the practice is that we become more comfortable with our human flaws. We become more accepting of human mistakes because the y-axis doesn't tolerate them. The vertical thinks that that is what we have to eliminate, to go beyond. And yet, when any time we are in embodied, we're embodied within our experience, there's going to be limitations on our abilities, on our potentials, on the whole way that we interrelate with life. 
And it's to become at ease with that so that we can descend again. Until we become at ease with that, until we become at ease with that, we cannot descend any further. We can't willfully descend beyond ourselves because we would like to go there. And one of the ways that people most uh, mistake the journey is in this, when the Dharma is um, uh, spoken about, it's usually said something like being with, what we're doing here is we're learning to be with things as they are. Being with things as they are. Being with things as they are. Sounds great, doesn't it? And yet, I've had so many people talk to me about, as I mentioned, situations in their life, a poor job, something uh, uh, traumatic that occurs, which they just live with rather than communicate the dysfunctionality with, because being with things as they are is a, actually becomes a, a, um, a reference for self-blame. If I can't be with this as it is, it must be my fault because that's what the practice is asking for. And even though there is unskillful uh, unskillfulness on the part of what I'm interrelating or a- acting with, It's still my job to be with things as they are. All matter of confusion comes from that. There's a no that comes in us. A no. Being with things as they are, what that simply means is that this, uh, we, what, what does change in us is this quality that we have, most of us live with for most of our life, is that this shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be happening. That does go away. I don't say to myself anymore, this shouldn't be happening. What's happening, happening. That is, being with things as they are is what's happening is. It's, a, it's an is. But that doesn't mean that we don't interact with that, that we don't offset whatever injustice might be occurring within that situation. It doesn't mean giving up the right to enter to come interact with that situation. Just because it is going on doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play in influencing life. And so again, it's that paradox that seems to freeze us. And we take one side of the spiritual equation. I'm supposed to be with things as they are. And then we allow ourselves to be in an unskillful relationship or something, an abusive relationship or something. And that that's really our fault because I'm not being with things as they are. This is nonsense. There's a really nice example I saw in a Mother Teresa film some time ago. You probably, some of you probably saw it as well. By the way, this new revelation about Mother Teresa having doubt has just made me love her more. <laughs> you see, that's the paradox. That's the paradox, that she could be a human being, God forbid, 
as Christ was when he said essentially the same thing on the cross. Like, have you betrayed me? Which is a human statement from my point of view. But we can't allow those people to be humans, can we? Because we're so afraid of being our own human being. But the fact that she had doubt and could work her magic in the world was the intersecting point for her. And if it takes us, if we think that she should have just been a unbridled y-axis up to the heavens, look again. Everyone has limitations. That's not what it means to be awakened. So let us understand that. I think it's important. But in this movie, I remember she was in Beirut during uh, some years ago when Beirut, the Christians and the Muslims were warring factions and there were bombs and and there, she heard about an orphanage in the middle of Beirut that had uh, children who were disformed or disfigured and were caught within the middle of this battle. And she said she organized a convoy to go in and get the children. But there was a battle going on. And so the priests tried to dissuade her uh, not to do that. And she said, no, I've prayed. And uh, uh, tomorrow I've uh, prayed so that the, the battle will stop so I can go in and get the children. And the priest said, Mother, don't you think you should give God a little more time? <laughs> and she said, this is how it relates to the previous series, she says, God doesn't need time. Overnight, there was a brokerage, a brokered ceasefire, unbeknownst to her. She gets up in her convoy, goes in town, picks them up, all the children up, takes them back out of town to safety, and the next day the fighting resumes. Now, you see that? So she's having doubt? Right. Right, so there's the, you see there's the vertical, and then there's a human being. Where she's going, God, is this really true? Haven't you ever had that experience in meditation? Haven't you ever thought, is this true? Is all this stuff true that he's saying up there or I'm reading in these books? Could this be true? And yet here you are. And then you see the mystery unfold right in front of you sometimes. And you go, is that true or is that just coincidence? That, that moment of intersection there, you see, where the human meets the divine. The human meets the divine. She had that convoy going in town come hell or high water. There was no possibility that there wouldn't have been a calm that day when you have that kind of faith. So there's a, it's just a beautiful yes and no of life as it's flowing in terms of that contraction expansion of bird wings, the beautifulness, the, the beautiful way that we both doubt and have faith in the same moment. I love uh, the Martin Luther King quote when he was in jail, he was placed in jail, uh, and during that time he was in jail. 
he wrote this, and I just, I just, uh, it's always uh, affected me. He says, um, "We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with our soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws." But we will soon wear you down with our capacity to endure the suffering you inflict. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and consciousness that we will win yours in the process. Now, that's an absolute statement to me. You see, it's not um, idealistic. The, The no is so clear there, isn't it? This is not just. This is the African American society wasn't saying, well, you know, just be with things as you are and go sit in the back of the bus. No, that's not just. So it's not they're not creating violence. He's not creating violence through this. He's just responding to the injustice of the heart. He's responding to the no of the situation. He's not saying it shouldn't be like this. This shouldn't be happening. It is happening. I'm having to sit in the back of the bus. So this is happening, and the heart then responds with a no. It doesn't respond with anger or vengeance. I was uh, teaching in Texas this weekend, and uh, a young woman who I've known now for many years, who just went through graduate school, young, she's still in her 20s. And because I've known her for a long period of time, I've known her come through a certain kind of idealism. And she then went in, went through two years of um, MSW training. And she's come out uh, a little bit, um, well, she's seen what the possibilities are and she's seeing what the world is doing to those possibilities. And she, there's this tension in her that never used to be. Uh, and uh, in her heart has contracted in kind of a, a righteousness and an anger, which is totally, uh, totally understandable when you have gone through that schooling, which I did. Uh, schooling is, almost trains you to, to respond in that way. And... The no is not, it's, it's this should not be happening. That's what's happening. The no is coming from this should not be happening. And I said to her, but it is happening. You see, it's not, a, it's not an argument. That's, that's the vertical influence on the human response. So it's not a question of argument. It's not a question of of um, anger. It's a question of the heart coming out in saying no to this and then doing whatever it needs to do to remedy, to counterbalance that situation, to put it back into balance. Now that sounds, again, as I'm even saying it, it sounds like um, a polarity, you know, a, a paradox. How can those two coexist? How can we say this, this is what life is in this moment and try to work and engage yourself in a way that remedies the way it is. That's the no and yes of life. 
That's the contraction and expansion. That's Mother Teresa's doubt and her faith. And we live in the midst of that in the course of our practice. And if we become too humanized, too vertically responsive, then we are reactive. We're tight. We get uh, angry. We get upset. We get uh, so we were tr- we, that it becomes a personal issue with ours. That's too far. You have to pull it back. This is happening because it is happening. That's the fact. And the heart then comes responds to that fact when it's in proper alignment with the vertical in a very human and very adaptive way. It says, okay, what can I do to help out here? What can I do to right this pain? And I think it's time that each of us brought that element of the crossing of those points together in our own heart rather than idealizing what the meditation will do to us or for us. You'll fight your own humanness forever when you idealize what this is about. Many of us have had the experience of wanting to be more generous than we really feel at the moment. And so we're asked to do something for our neighbor or for someone who is requesting something from us. And the yes of our intention, or the yes of our spiritual life, the yes of what we feel like we would like to go, predominates over the no of, hey, you know, this is going to be burdensome for me to do this. It's going to inflict a lot of time, a lot of difficulty on me to do this. But we want to, we push the no away and we just live with this yes because we think that that's the way a spiritual life should properly unfold towards more and more yes. And we push away the resentment factor. And so how many of you have successfully been able to do that before you start blowing up? at whoever it is over time that you've suppressed that resentment factor. We live with the yes and the no. We live with the sense that this is going to be a burden and I don't really want to do it. And I have the time and I have the availability to be able to do it. So what am I going to do? So I'm not, I'm not pushing against one and I'm not siding with the other. I live with them at the crosshairs. Let's see here. What's going on here? Okay, I'll do it. But then I'm conscious of the resentment as well. And so the resentment doesn't become a breathing ground, a breeding ground for reactivity. And so the yes and no are simultaneously lived. Neither denied. I don't just, you've asked me before to hell with you, I'm not doing it again. That's just the no. You see, it's to t- take it all into consideration. It may be you would say, well, you know, I, don't, I do have the time, but I don't have the inclination. I'm, for this reason or that reason, it just isn't going to work for me this time. That's all. Can we say that? Do we have the capacity to stand on our feet and say that to another human being? Or do we think that they'll think less of us, you see? 
Because all these psychological difficulties come up, our psychological neediness will come up in the yes or the no, depending upon what our disposition is. And we hold that. To hold the yes and no means we also have to hold the psychological infighting that goes on back there in us. But we don't lose the, the loss of self-love. We don't give away ourselves for the sake of another. We consider ourselves equal when we consider another. We consider ourselves absolutely as lovable and as needy and as, as respectful as we do the other. To give away ourselves for the sake of another is not love. There's this story that I think Sharon tells of um, that of uh, she was uh, in front of this teacher and the teacher was testing her compassion and he says Sharon you're in the forest with your best friend uh, and uh, with your best friend and someone uh, who you don't care about. And a bandit comes up to you and says, I'm going to take one of your lives. I'm going to take you, Sharon's, your life. I'm going to take the bandit's life. I'm going to take your, or or, or I'm going to take the person you don't care about's life. Or I'm going to take your best friend's life. And Sharon, it's up to you to decide who I'm going to murder. And Sharon said, I can't answer that. Most of us would have said, take me. Right? Because we're noble. Or inside we would have really thought, take the guy I don't care about. (laughs) But the truth is that everyone deserves equal respect. That everyone is equally appropriate to live. And that the mind, siding with the mind is not siding with love. And feeling all the different tugs and pulls that love asks us to take in terms of making the decision. But in the end, sitting with the yes and the no simultaneously. You see, when we understand that sitting with the yes and no and all of the different voices in us simultaneously, we also know what we mean when we say, may all beings, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful. Because the all beings are all beings in us. All the different voices in us. Because we have them all. And so when we are asking or involving our metta and spreading it out, may all beings. We're really talking about all the different voices. All the different ways that we hold the truth. All the different ways that we side and shade the truth. All the different dispositions we have within us. All beings. May all beings be happy. May all beings be seen as a whole. May all beings come together and not be fractured against one another. In that unfractured moment, there's no separation. And when there's no separation... The no of love comes from wanting or willing to be separate any longer. No, my actions will not harm. There's a no to that. An irreversible, steady no. 
Okay, I'll put you in jail. Put me in jail. Go kill people in Iraq? No. I'll put you in jail. Okay, put me in jail. We'll put you in front of a firing squad. So be it. It's that resolution that's so deep that will no longer fracture the world because the no and the yes are neither side is taken. And we sit at that cross point where all the voices merge into non-separation. Where the Buddha said to his monks, it is this way we will train ourselves, he said. By liberation of the self through love, we will develop love, we will practice love, we will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. So there it is. It is the mind that tries to project its pattern on love. And it's love's job to hold the mind and not take sides. Where the no and the yes can meet in the middle and thoroughly set love going. Can we sit for a minute or two? So as you sit, you see, how do you sit? What are we leaning into or away from? Letting it all come together, all the voices. To coexist in that stillness, denying nothing, denying the doubt, denying the faith, not denying the doubt, not denying the faith, not denying the yes, not denying the no. Which way love will move in relationship to that yes and no? It will not always move towards the yes. Sometimes it knows because it takes itself with equal consideration. Sometimes it knows it has to rest with the no in the limitation of oneself. It doesn't idealize that. It doesn't belittle that fact. And it certainly doesn't hold some scriptural reference for the way it should live. So we have a few minutes of time left. If somebody would, anyone would like to ask any questions or have comments about anything, I'd be happy to respond as I can. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. 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 Uh, maybe comment on that a little bit. And then two is 
picture, there is no bottom line right, right answer right. that we can turn to. It seems right. the point to really cultivating a trust in ourselves. Yes. Yes, 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 dear. Good one. Okay, so let me uh, first talk about the Burma situation. Uh, she mentioned that uh, given my talk and the recent news about Burma, that would I comment on it. And um, uh, I was in Burma. I know the oppressive government that's there firsthand and the paranoia that lives in the people and has lived in the people. Uh, and I... Uh, also know that uh, if it had been any separ- uh, segment of the population other than the monks who were taking on this revolt, they would have been immediately uh, smashed and thrown in prison if not killed. And so, but there's an enormous faith uh, in Buddhism, even by the most hardened military militarist there. And so the monks are the safest population, although now it's getting to be very unsafe, the safest population to lead a protest and also to lead it nonviolently. There no, there's no violence that I'm aware of that's going on. They're just out there in the streets making their voice heard. It's the no. It's the same thing like Martin Luther King. Making a statement about the unjust. I can't, this is not okay. And you're, you put your life on the line for that. It's, at that point, it doesn't really matter whether you live or die uh, any more than uh, somebody saying, uh, you will go off to Iraq and kill soldiers, and you say, no, I will not, and I'm willing to suffer the consequences of that, including being thrown in jail or facing a firing squad, but I won't do that. It's the same thing. At some point, your life is secondary to the heart's... Um, to the heart's uh, no. And each of us have that uh, no within us. Each of us have that place where we will not go. Don't we? If we honor it, if we, which is integrity, really, and what it starts getting clearer to us, and this is the second part of your voice, your question in terms of the um, one's own trust in oneself. You trust that no. It's not an angry no. You can look and see. And if there is, then we have to work on that aspect because we're leaning too far into the righteous corner and creating division. Whenever there's righteousness, there's division. And you have an enemy. And this is not about enemies. It's about a no. No. No has no enemies. Yes doesn't have any enemies either, but neither does no. Any more than you're making an enemy of the infant by telling him that he or she can't go out into the traffic. You're not, there's no enemy there. The traffic's not the enemy, the child's not the enemy, and you're not the enemy of the child. There's no enemy, but there's a strong no. And that is a trust that we learn to develop and learn to build upon in ourselves, where... Uh, we know when we, uh, when we compromise it, because it doesn't feel good. But we have learned to compromise it and not feel good as kind of a way to live in this culture. And so we're leaning away from that tendency, more desiring conformity or getting along or whatever it might be, um, and not taking action where we know that action needs to be taken. 
An action does not deny living in love. It is not, uh, as I can perceive it, ever violent. And it does not create enemies. But that does not mean it isn't a firm action. And to begin to trust and listen for that. Now listen for the no in every and every time you give yourself away, every time somebody wants something from you, every time you are faced with your spir- a spiritual crisis, which is somebody asking you to do something for them, there is always a resentment factor. That's just being a human being. No one that I know of, including Mother Teresa, goes out into Calcutta and picks up dead bodies and doesn't feel, God, I wish somebody else was doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but and so, but you, if you live denying that no, that that resentment, then you're never going to allow the coming together of the voices to form a union. You have to be conscious of all the different voices within us, so that the the voice can be unified, so that the mind can be unified, so that it can see and perceive what it needs to do outside of any particular voice uh, pitted against the other. And you learn to trust. You learn how to access your own trust through holding all the voices and not siding with any of them. And we can hear it. That's what the meditation is. You can hear, oh, I don't really want to do this. Okay, so, okay, I give that. You get your day in court, resentment. And you get your day in court, spiritual idealist. And you... Okay, so you, and then you look at the whole situation and you feel your life and you say, I don't know what you say. You say something. It doesn't, won't always be yes and it won't always be no. It'll be something that has the whole rather than the part as the reason it speaks. And you learn how to trust that. You don't trust each voice, you trust the whole. Good, thank you. Other comments? Yes. I have a question. Um, I was at the beginning of class last night. Yes. And you used that analogy with, uh, about the uh, desire and aversion and the, on the mound. Yes. Yes. Right. Is that the same with the yes and no? Yeah. Uh, so she's talking about a, uh, last night in class I was talking about um, an example of um, aversion and attraction being like you, you have a marble on top of a hill and when you're strongly aversive, you hit that marble and it runs very fast down the hill and rolls away and you take the marble, put it on the hill and somebody is grasping and desirous, hits the marble and it goes running down the other way. And it's, But then you take the hill, you take the mound and you invert it into a U and you put the marble in the middle of that U and you hit it and after meditation, it's to show what the meditation process does, the marble doesn't move very far or it, doesn't, it comes back to a steady point. Um, and what happens is that we learn, and it's to answer your question about that in relationship to the other question I just answered, we learn that we, we mistrust uh, what the mind is saying that I need to do in relationship to my habits of having previously done this or run this way, or tried to fix the situation in this manner, 
or try to look outside of myself for the remedy that will um, allow me to come to some kind of contentment. We learn to mistrust all that because it hasn't worked and we see that it's running on the memory and fiction quality of the mind, the imaginative quality of the mind, and that nothing about here and now really has anything to do with that. And so after meditation and after seeing the the limitation of grasping and clinging, the mind comes to some sense of balance in itself and doesn't get lost as easily in the attraction and aversion of the situation. That's another way of saying that we no longer listen to the voices of the mind in the same way. We no longer run after those voices. In fact, one of the no's that we begin to assert on us is the no to our story. There's a strong sense called wisdom that sees that the story has no bearing on here and now and that we're not going to be governed by the story. It's a, it's a no, an unshakable no, as it begins to see more and more the truth of that fact and, it's, and it stands up and it says, no, it's the no of love because to move with this story is really self-abusive. And because it loves all things, including itself equally, it's not going to abuse itself with uh, imaginative responses to a reality that isn't even here. And so it says no to it. And so the no of love really starts to intercede into our practice in a more and more subtle way. And again, this is another aspect of trusting oneself and what one has seen. Why our friends are going off and with the mound and flying this way and flying that, we feel a little bit weird <laughs> in our responses. They're not like everybody else's. That's what in the Bible, the mark of Cain we each have the mark of Cain upon us. I hope you all know that. <laughs> and, it's, uh, and you can't wash it off. And you can't, you can't dismiss it. You can't get rid of it. If you, even if you wanted to, you can't. But you know too much already. So you know too much. You know too much of the know of love already. And you aren't governed by merely your psychological neediness. That's another no you say to. I'm not going to be governed by that. That doesn't help the other person. doesn't help me. No. That's the no of love. And we keep offering ourselves more and more space to be authentic through the no of being inauthentic. In fact, the whole practice works from negating the inauthentic. We don't uncover the authentic. We negate the inauthentic. And what's left is the authentic. That's how the practice unfolds. So the whole thing is no, really. (laughs) That's the entire expression of love, really, is no. Isn't it interesting? So interesting. Anyone else? Yes. Um, how then do you, it, it seems to me like from what you were just saying, that experience, 
also know that you could look within the witching time. And predominantly right away, it was getting up to Well, uh, your question is about experience in Buddha nature. Um, We learn about the limitation of what following our experience does through awareness of our experience. And finally, we reach the point to be able to say no to our experience in the way it normally propels and encourages us to act and move and react. And once we live uninfluenced by conditions because we said no to them all. That is our Buddha nature. You can do it as quickly as you want to, but for most of us, we have to experience all the no's by having played out the yeses until we are tired of them. And that's the reason it takes so long, is that we're not finished with the yeses, running after the experiences and playing them out, trying to milk them a little more because most of us, have, if, we're, if we really are honest with ourselves, have long since grown sophisticated and mature enough to know that they're not going to do what we think they're going to do. And therefore, we've reached the end of that, but we're still, we're still reluctant to face the no of it because we're afraid of the austerity that might be on the other side of that no. And so we'd rather play it out and fantasize that maybe this time, rather than face an austerity of not having anything to do. What would I be like if I didn't respond to fear or habit in this moment? That feels so desolate, so alone, so isolated, that I guess I'll have another ice cream. (laughs) So that's that's the fix that most of us find ourselves in. It's not to be begrudged. It's not to be begrudged. It's to be lived. It's to be lived and to be understood and to be looked at and to be conscious of. God, I'm in this fix. I can't believe it. Here I am, 60 years old. I'm in a fix. (laughs) Doesn't matter. 110, it doesn't matter the age. So our willingness to look and perceive. Our awareness isn't 60. Our awareness has no age at all. And so the part that is ageless responds and sees. And it doesn't grow old. Or at least I'm hoping. (laughs) It doesn't grow old. (laughs) Okay, thank you all. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.